I used to subscribe to a magazine called Metropolis, which is more about like architecture, but they also had, you know, it was kind of a variety of ideas in there. And they had one font that was just absolutely beautiful that I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And uh, the, the first time I saw it, it was the headline was about George W. Bush. And I just stared at that for like literally like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes examining all the different letters. And it was just incredible. I was like, that is the most amazing typeface and, and set that I've ever seen. You want to have a one Developers Live is brought to you by Codebrush for Visual Studio. We appreciate their support. With Consume First Declaration, powerful templates, smart selection tools, intelligent code analysis, innovative navigation, and an unrivaled collection of visual refactorings all working together, your development productivity will increase dramatically with Codebrush. We'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash Codebrush. That's Jeffrey Grossenbach once again, waxing poetic on fonts. It was kind of angular, but it wasn't square. It had some kind of triangular ideas in there. And yet, the lines all looked like they were the same width, so they, everything just kind of looked straight. But in order to achieve that effect, you have to actually make things thicker in some places and thinner when they join up with other other lines. And you have to, you have to do things to lines in order to make them look like they're straight and in fact they're not they're you know they're bending in at, in different points or something like that and the, the way they had done that just looked really great so anyway i've you know i found this one and i used it for peep code well it turns out it's the facebook the logo the facebook logo uses that font and now uh <laughs> comcast great. infinity uh or xfinity they use it and actually the other day i saw it in like an ad for sears and i was like oh no i've definitely not chosen something kind of niche and <laughs> hard to discover if Sears is using it in the Sunday paper. I was arguing with a friend of mine recently who loves metal. He loves metal music. And I hate metal. And I don't know why he was born this one way and I was born another way. And it's the same thing with fonts. There's some people who love a certain font. They do their entire lives in Helvetica. And there's other people who do their entire life in Comic Sans. But there's supposed to be a science behind it. It's an art form. Fonts affect people at an emotional level like art affects people. And just as I don't understand art history and art criticism or have any idea what Roger Ebert is talking about when he tells about how uh, you know Weekend at Bernie's is evocative of Truffaut's 400 Blows. I'm sure that there's a science behind the font, but I know I'm not supposed to use Arial. There's this wonderful, so you need a typeface flowchart that was created by a guy named Julian Hansen. And you basically start at the beginning, and it says things like, did you cry when watching Terminator? Yes, use OCR. 
<laughs> I like it. Do you have a lot of tables? Use letter Gothic. Is it okay with you if the font is Swiss? And use Helvetica. Not afraid to be asked if you live in the 90s? <laughs> These are the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves when doing a font. But I do know this. You have to ask someone who knows about fonts. Every time I try to dress myself, I fail. Every time I try to pick my own font, I fail. Ask an expert. There's a science here. And so we did just that. After the style interview we did with Jeffrey Grossenbach, I got into a discussion with him about fonts. And I asked him directly, what does a good font look like? What makes one more stylish or modern than another one? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, what's uh, the word modern for anything is is kind of or contemporary or, you know, that that's a, a relative term. Really, it changes as things go along. And, um, you know, that's true in fashion for clothes or even programming, uh, you know, the, the kinds of languages that we like to use or the, the syntax of languages uh, changes. So it's, you know, the same thing with the types of, of fonts that are people people are choosing to look at or use how do they determine what that is i mean i guess one, one could look at the history of of how it all happened people started with handwriting and calligraphy and then when they when uh finally gutenberg figured out okay let's you know melt some some metal and stamp this into paper the first kinds of things they tried to do just looked like calligraphy calligraphic handwriting and it was a while later that people thought well we're we're doing something completely different so let's come up with something that looks completely different and doesn't look you know you couldn't easily achieve that just with a pen or or a nibbed nibbed ink pen or something like that and then yeah then it, it goes on from there um the first i mean all the kinds of things that most people like now which is the sans serif font or if you want to say it with more an accent, American accent, you know, sans serif, uh, which I don't, I, <laughs> I don't say it that way, but apparently that's how you're supposed to say it if you're American. Uh, you know, that was because somebody was just being kind of avant-garde and, you know, hacking the uh, hacking the little feet and, and tails off of a existing uh, Roman kind of times looking kind of thing and look completely different. And now we just think that's normal. That's kind of the default of, of how we want stuff to look. I'm not exactly a font person, but I knew it when I saw it. That like, right. you look at this page and I and my eyes aren't bleeding when I read this text and the headers make sense and it flows and you sort of feel it. You know what I'm saying? You feel, and I'm wondering if there's some kind of study that anyone has done where the curves of the font or, they, or, the, or the shapes strike some sort of, I don't know what, some sort of uh, nerve in your brain or something. Do you know of anything like that? Is there a scientific reason why we like some fonts more than others for reading or for headings? Well, there's huge, um, huge research into just what's readable. And the, the important thing is in what condition. I actually went to a, a type design conference here in Seattle a couple years ago, which I loved. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to this every year. And then I haven't gone since. But some someday again, I will go to another one of their yearly conferences. And wow, um, there's a conference for everybody. Want to do some cosplay? There's a conference for that. Really like Helvetica? Let's go to the Red Lion Inn. 
<laughs> Everyone loves Garamond. You ever seen that video from College Humor called uh, Font Conference? Yes. Today we'll decide whether or not to offer membership to Zaff Dingbats. Oh, Wing Dings was bad enough. I'm sick of pandering to these artsy farts. You should really expand your worldview, Ariel Narrow. Ransom! What are you doing here? Come on, get with the times, new Roman. I know your system like the back of a lucid hand. Just ask your friend, Courier. You have two minutes. For every minute after that, Courier and Curls MT will lose one of their serves. Not so fast, Ransom. Comic Sans! Comic Sans, the boldest of them all. I hate you so much. I thought that Baskerville really got a bum deal on that one. Why does no one respect Bodoni? My favorite part of that whole clip was Century Gothic. Unfortunately, you couldn't hear it because there was nothing to hear. She was just sitting there, this goth woman. She's like, everyone I'm with is sheep. You're all conformists. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Janine Garofalo of fonts. Exactly. You know, they talked about all things from like uh, fonts designed for highway signs. And they, they actually, you know, tested it by putting water on it and, and looking at it in the dark and having, you know, reflective letters. And, and they tried dozens, even hundreds of different shapes to see what was going to be the, the easiest to read on a highway, you know, a sign exit here, you know, here's this or that street. Um, Georgia is interesting because that probably why it looks good on a computer screen is because it was designed for a computer screen. It was actually, I believe Microsoft commissioned that from, a famous type designer and they said, you know, we want something that's and this was like, you know, 95 or something like that. You know, we want something that looks good on, you know, 800 by 600 pixel screens. And so it was specifically designed to look good on a screen. It wouldn't look as good if you printed out necessarily um, because it wasn't, wasn't designed. It wasn't targeted for that. As far as the research hooking into the neurons in the brain and recognition of visual patterns or something, I'm, you know, I'm sure somebody might be doing that, but usually it's just they try a bunch of things, have a bunch of people look at it and, and figure out what's the easiest to read. I, I made an argument today on my blog and I mistakenly, I misused O order N notation mm-hmm. and suddenly 1500 programmers that are ma- also math geeks came around. And just went bananas, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing if you go and say an O should have a slash through it. It's like the most political thing ever. It's like, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, suddenly, <laughs> what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying to me? How can you, how dare you? You know, I mean, there's, there are a few things more political than, well, politics and programmer fonts. All it takes is for a web developer like you or I, like you said before, to use Arial or something in a web design and look out, you will have people ripping you apart. What did I do? I just put a nice, what I thought was readable font on my page. It's something I just, I don't know. I don't know what a good font is. I don't necessarily know what a bad font is. Except There for- are a few things in the world that will make you question your breeding and your education than a poor font choice. How dare you use Baskerville and Palatino in this context in the same sheet of paper? <laughs> But how do you know what a bad font is, except when Gruber climbs all over you or someone says, oh. Only MS Comic Sans. All other fonts are allowable. You know, 
I think a lot of it is like how it's used and the kind of the, yeah the way the way that people use it. I mean, one of the one that I dislike happens to be Gotham by Heffler Fur Jones, not because it's a bad typeface. I, I think it's beautiful. I just think it's overused. You look. I was like going to start a blog where or a Tumblr blog or something where I try to go for a month without seeing it. You know. Three days in a row or something and i would can pretty much guarantee i would see gotham somewhere in on tv print signs building the name of the building whatever you know at least every other day or third day or something like that because it's just used everywhere all over the place you know and it's it looks great and people are using it. i think comic sans is you know it's horrible to compare those two because they're completely different but i mean i've Part of the reason people don't like comics, your designers or something don't like Comic Sans is because it's used all over the place by all kinds of people who uh, like the mood that it communicates and and maybe there's something else that would work better or uh, be a little more refined or, or, or something like that. So I'm going to go ahead and say what Jeffrey won't. People that use Comic Sans, I think, are people that wear acid wash. <laughs> no sense of what makes a good font good. You know, this from I, a man who wears Hawaiian shirts and acid wash right. pants. Well, I said before I didn't know what a, a bad font necessarily was, but I'll tell you, you know, if you really think about it, what we're talking about with a good font is clean lines, it's readable, it's a pleasure to look at. So, for instance, uh, you, you know the font Papyrus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a it's like a specialized a, font. It's not something it's like you use a, every day. It's a tiki-ish thing, and I've had so many friends think, "Oh, I'm going to be clever and use papyrus." And you know, it's just every time I see it, it makes me want to groan. Oh, it's horrible. But a great font, nice, clean one, is Helvetica, which everybody knows. And speaking of, um, you know that movie Helvetica? Have you right, seen? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fantastic documentary on Helvetica. It's an entire movie, two hours long, about Helvetica, not about fonts. Nope about Helvetica itself. It's great. It's, it's surprisingly watchable. My favorite part of that is the extras where uh, Eric Speakerman, famous German designer, font designer, uh, you know, rails against Ariel. And, and uh, well, no, he actually, he's, he's, you know, ranting about Microsoft and, you know, everyone has a reason many, many people have a reason why they hate Microsoft you know for open source developers you know for Linux developers it's because they put Linux on their hit list and for Eric Speakerman you know font designer it's because they made a kind of bastardized version of Helvetica and that's what Arial is and they didn't want to pay the the uh, licensing fees so they th- thought well it's cheaper for us just to make our own from scratch that looks mostly like it rather than making you know paying licensing fees and so that's why he hates Microsoft, I thought, I thought that was kind of funny. Well, I, I did not know that. Is is that why uh, the, the the literati, the fontanistas, uh, don't uh, like Arial? Uh, apparently, I had no idea about. Wow. The, the funny thing is, if you watch that font conference clip, uh, Arial Narrow is the backwoods lumberjack redneck hick. <laughs> it's really funny. You know, I just. I, <laughs> How do you know when, when two fonts aren't the same font? I mean, I'm looking at some fonts right now. 
Walbum and Bodoni look like the same font. Palatino and Lexicon looks the same. I mean, you're I'm not get, sure. You're going to get sure email that, about that. You I'm not going to get email. No, I'm being that. totally straight with you. I'm looking here at a list of fonts, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, Sabon, Minion, Joanna, Palatino, and Lexicon all look like Times New Roman to me. Right, and at this point, some poor font guy's brain just exploded, and he's like <laughs> screaming in pain. It's like, okay, so I've got a knockoff uh, Louis Vuitton bag. Does Louis Vuitton really? I mean, imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, right? Mm-hmm. Did they steal Helvetica? I mean, is there a simpler font on the planet than Helvetica? You gotta be a special kind of person, you know, a specific kind of person to do that, because. It's funny, you look at, uh, I think somebody, I think it was like uh, Mark Simonson or something, has designed some beautiful typefaces, and he posted some of his handwriting, and it was horrible. And you ask some of these type designers to do a, to, you know, design a web page or something, they, they couldn't do it. You know, it's this very specific skill, and you have to be just, when I was at this conference a couple of years ago, they had a critique session where... And I can't believe it was the guy who did Georgia was was one of the guys commenting and people would bring in stuff that they had been working on for years and they would look at it and it's, well, you know, it needs a little more spacing here or this is too big or small or something like that. I mean, it's just a huge amount of work to uh, to get something to look right. Many thanks to Jeffrey Grossenbach once again for sharing his thoughts, style, and design. If you're interested, check out his blog, blog.peepcode.com. Jeff Atwood told me once that you're not a real programmer until you build your own computer from scratch and parts. So I did that. Damien Gard told me I'm not a real programmer until I write my own programmer font from scratch. Really? That's insane. That's, yeah. He has spent thousands and thousands of hours creating his own programmer font. And the thing is, the more hours he spends, the more insane it sounds, and the more I respect him for doing it. I mean, if you're going to stare at this thing for literally thousands of hours a year, why shouldn't you make your own? My wife knits. Does your wife knit, Scott? My wife... Believes that she can knit. It's funny. Knitting is one of those things that you'll be you'll be talking to somebody about anything, and they'll just reach over, grab a bag, out come the knitting needles, and they start knitting while you're talking. It's just one of those passively strange things, but they're fully capable of keeping a conversation going. So I'm at Brad Wilson's house, and Damien uh, is there, and he whips out his Macintosh. We're all talking. He whips <laughs> out his Macintosh, and he starts coding his font. Coding. Coding his font. his font. That's the word. It's not designing. It's not drawing. No. It's not paintbrush. He codes it. Yeah. And he was able to talk to us at the same time as like making hint rules. And I asked mm. him, what the heck are you doing? And so he proceeded to show me all about it. It was absolutely fascinating. It is. It's an entire universe. A, a font is an executable piece of code as much as anything. There are a few people who know more about fonts than Bill Hill. I mean, this is the guy who was involved in designing ClearType. This man loves his fonts. He drinks them, he eats them, he sleeps them, but it's ultimately not about the fonts for Bill. 
It's about the reading. This is a man who loves books. He loves absorbing information, and a bad font slows him down. Now, Damien didn't find a programmer font, so he wrote his own. Bill Hill didn't like the way reading felt on the screen, so he revolutionized the industry. What's even crazier about Bill is that I've known Bill for years, but I didn't know he was Bill Hill. Uh, I knew him as the grizzled old Scotsman that would go surfing out in the bay here in Honolulu Bay. We'd talk every now and again, and I just thought, wow, this is a muscly old grizzled Scotsman. What a cool guy. And then I find out it's Bill Hill, the inventor of ClearType. So grab my microphone one day. You and I decided to do a show on fonts, and this is what we got. We invented ClearType. Uh, it was uh, myself, Bert Keeley, uh, Greg Hitchcock, and Mike Duggan at Microsoft. It was the four of us who invented and implemented ClearType. And the reason we did it at the time, we were working on, Bert and I were working on ebooks, which is another whole story because just last week Microsoft announced they're killing off the reader, which we built, which had actually given them a 10 year technology lead, which they then proceeded to squander. We'll talk about that a bit more later on. Screen resolutions at that time were about, about 88 pixels per inch. The best of them were, were maybe 96. And it's not good enough to show text. It works fine for like display type and headings and stuff like that, but the text that we actually read, we read using a part of the retina called the fovea. It's only 0.2 of a millimetre across, and it has one and a half degrees of visual arc. What that means is we need to read type, not want to, but need to read type at between 9 and 13 points in size, point being a 72nd of an inch. So... 12-point type is a sixth of an inch high. We need to read type at those sizes at normal reading distances. It's not a question of want, it's about the human physiology. Right? So you can't just make the type bigger in ebooks and things like that. It doesn't really work. So not enough pixels to show the, the subtlety of, of type. The way that the human visual system interacts with type and the way the human brain interacts with type is very, very interesting. I mean, it's a result of five and a half thousand years of evolution since we first invented writing systems. The, the type that you look at today in a magazine or, or, or on your iPad, you know, is the result of 550 years of Darwinian evolution since Gutenberg. Right? What worked survived and what didn't died. And, and that's why, you know, if you look at a book, open, open any paperback book. They all look pretty much the same, right? They have about the same width of margins, about the same width of a column of text, um, about the same size type, <laughs> because all humans are the same, right? right. We're, we're, all, we're all Africans. We all left Africa about 140,000 years ago or thereabouts. Um, every human being on the face of the planet has the same DNA marker as an, a guy who left Africa at that time. So we're all the same. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're Japanese or Chinese, you read type roughly the same sizes because we all have the same size fovea. Or thereabouts. Anyway, not enough pixels to show the subtlety of type, which actually helps the human eye to recognize, the human brain to recognize word shapes and so on. So we had to figure out a way. I mean, the hardware wasn't going to get any better for a while. And Bert, Bert Keeley is kind of one of the guys who knows more about LCD displays than anybody else I know. 
And Bert and I started talking. The very first time we got together, it was like you could feel the sparks in the room. We pretty much invented clear type in the first two hours of talking together. Um, it took us about uh, it took us about a week to kind of refine the idea. We went to Greg Hitchcock because Greg had worked for me, and, and and Greg knew all about the true type rasterizer in Windows and how it worked and so on. Greg started. It. Greg got Mike Mike Duggan involved, and we did. Mike did some some uh, pixel popping prototypes. We're going in and changing the RGB values in the in the in the sub pixel. And as soon as they'd done it, Greg phoned Bert and I and said, "You guys have got to come over and look at this," because we were expecting it to be an improvement. We did not expect it to be nearly as good as it was. It was like, "Wow!" The inspiration was that people have been dealing with a pixel as a single unit, right—a square, black, or white pixel. But inside that pixel, on a liquid crystal display screen, there are actually three sub-pixels, a red, a green, and a blue. That's how you get the colours. Well, if you deal with the red, green, and blue as separate pixels, you actually have three times as much resolution in the horizontal dimension. Now, you get all kinds of colour fringing problems if you start to do, deal with that, but if you filter the signal, you can take the colour fringing down to a point where it's not perceptible by humans. Still there, but below human perception. So it's actually, it's actually taking how the human being sees colour and using that to minimise the effect of actually treating these, treating each of these pixels as, as if they're either black or white. And that gives us three times as much resolution in one dimension, but it so happens that's the hard one. The horizontal dimension, especially in Western type, is the, is the tough one. Yes. Um, so we... We found this magic switch where you just turned it and suddenly you had all this additional resolution. I mean, the first time we saw a passage of text laid out like that, it was like, whoa, holy shit. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think within that first week, we'd filed five patents. And we showed it to Bill, Bill Gates. And Bill said, that's amazing. He said, I can't see the colour at all. How did you guys do that? And the second question was, I hope you guys have patented this. <laughs> and, and that's what he did. And um, I mean, it was kind of weird because, like, two months before that, I'd been, I'd, I'd got chewed up by the shark infested waters of Windows and I'd been on a six week job search and I was six hours from leaving the company Wow! I mean I finally got offered a job, I had six hours left to run on the clock, uh -huh. two months later I'm on a stage with Bill Gates at Comdex, his major speech of the year, we're announcing clear type and, wow. and I'm like some kind of hero, I mean just the weirdest life sometimes The, the giant 30 inch monitor that I'm looking at is still 96 dots per inch and that's just not enough dots to make a font look good and I can't make any more dots unless I go and get a high resolution display so I look at a 96 dot per inch screen and I look down at my 600 dot per inch laser printer paper and I look back up at my 96 dot per inch screen but what Bill and his friends figured out was that there are three pixels to make one pixel red, green, blue. These are called sub-pixels. It's actually not 96 dots per inch. It's many times that. 
So by taking control of those sub-pixels and an awareness of the order in which they are, sometimes they're RGB and on some monitors they're BGR, they invented clear type and the gravity of this cannot be underestimated. They increased the resolution of my screen and how text felt without me buying new hardware. It literally breathed new life into reading on my monitor. ClearType was an amazing invention, but turns out not everyone was ecstatic about it. Corporate culture, really weird sometimes. ClearType was introduced in XP. Yeah. But the window guy, Windows guys buried it so deep nobody could ever find it. It was there, and but you had to get like five dialogues deep into the into the, the properties, the display properties dialogue to actually find out how to turn it on. It was really it was really tough to try and innovate at Microsoft, you know, to do something that changes Windows in such a fundamental way. kind of panics people and they, they, I mean the, I know of at least one manager who boasted of how she had managed to get uh, to prevent ClearType from being turned on by default in XP. I mean part of the opposition was it didn't make the people who fired me look very good. Um, I mean, that, that was definitely one, one, one thing about it. Um, the other thing was that it did mean they, they had to do some fundamental things. Uh, Bill was pounding on them. The minute he saw ClearType, he said, I want this in Windows. At Apple, when Steve Jobs said something, <laughs> you knew you did it or you got fired. At Microsoft, because they were so dependent on the huge revenue streams from Windows and Office, the Windows and Office teams knew how to play Bill. You know, the trump card was always, well, okay, we can do this, but it'll, it'll delay shipping of Windows by three months or six months or something. That was the card that always got played when, when you were introducing something that wasn't in the original plan. I mean, that, that's the thing at Microsoft. It got even more so now with Steven Sinofsky in, in place, where there's a plan and they execute to the plan. And that's all very well. It works great, except that you know, it maybe takes you two years to build a version of Windows and you start planning it and things change. You know, and and sometimes you just get a wild card like ClearType that appears out of nowhere. And what you should be able to do in a situation like that is grab it and go with it. Whereas, you know, it was like, oh, how do we deal with this? This is gonna cause us all kinds of problems. And <laughs> let's bury it five layers deep in the dialogue so nobody can get to it. So it turned out, I mean, Apple actually implemented ClearType. They implemented their own version, but the, the, the major cross-licensing deal between Microsoft and Apple meant that Apple got all of the patents for ClearType, so they could implement their own version. So, so the, I mean, you, you remember that, that patent cross-licensing deal? I think it was 1997. Bill Gates did it with Steve Jobs at a time when Apple was just about to go under. Microsoft put up 150 million bucks and there was a patent cross-licensing and that lasted through 
the period of the clear type patents, because the clear type patents were all about 1999, 1998, 1999, we lodged the base ones. So they were all part of that. So Apple got the right, got, got the rights to it. I mean, they've never actually acknowledged that they're using the same thing. You know, Apple wouldn't do that. Microsoft wouldn't do it if they'd got a piece of Apple technology. They just don't do that kind of thing. But in effect, it was their implementation of ClearType. It's our take, and you know, if you talk to somebody like Greg Hitchcock, Apple actually didn't do as good a job as we did. We, we did a lot better job because we used the hinting mechanism in, in TrueType to do some stuff as well, you know, like snapping outline edges to high contrast pixel boundaries and stuff like that. So Microsoft has, I don't know, 25, 30 ClearType patents. Um, we really parted on the technology. We, we, we really did a, a lot of development, a lot of innovation around it. However, having said that, you know, fast forward 10 years, 12 years, you have devices like the iPad, 133 ppi. My MacBook Pro has 133 ppi. Now Dell introduced 133 ppi in 1996 or 7. They introduced 147 the following year, but it never got anywhere because they were all running Windows. The Windows UI did not scale. I was running a 204 dots per inch, 22 inch IBM monitor on XP in 1998, 204 dots per inch, 2540 by 1900 and whatever, um, but huge resolution display, I was running that, but I had to jump through all kinds of hoops to make it happen. Generally, ClearType got, got, um, got kind of buried in XP. The, the crazy thing about it was, you know, it wasn't turned on by default until Vista shipped which was 10 years after we had invented it. 10 years before customers were getting it on getting it on automatically because Vista took so long. You know, they had that whole false start and they had to... Yeah. So it took about five years to, 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 to build Vista. So I could pretty much stop the interview right there and I'd be pretty happy. Bill Hill, as you can tell, is a really amazing speaker, incredibly intelligent man. The story of ClearType is pretty dramatic. But the story continues. Some of the fonts that you use every single day, Cambria, Consolas, Calibri, Georgia, Verdana, all of those true type fonts. Well, guess who was in charge of the group that created those fonts? That's right, Bill. The, 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 the fonts people at Microsoft have been years ahead. Uh, I mean, look at a, a typical example, the, the very first project I approved when I when I went to Microsoft to run the typography group. The very first project I signed off on was to get this somewhat well-known font designer called Matthew Carter to design two new typefaces specifically for reading lots of text on the web, Verdana and Georgia. Right? That was the first project I did. When I arrived at Microsoft, it was to work for a guy called Steve Shaman, who got type. They'd been looking for, for somebody to run the typography group for quite some time. The typography group was a bit that was left over after one section of the team had gone into Word. Eliezer Cohen's team that were doing uh, line services, the composition engine for Word. Right. The group that was left behind had no real clear vision of the future. It was still 
very much thinking about the whole printing thing. And what I did when I took over the team was, I, I first of all had my own epiphany, which was, you know what, the screen's the future. We need to focus on that. Then I took the team for an off-site. We did, we did um, you know, two days of kind of brainstorming and planning, came back, produced a report, a strategic plan called Read It Anywhere, which was, you know, it basically said, look, fonts are strategic to Microsoft because, hey, text is the, the, the major data type for all of our, for all of our users. Uh, the web's going to be huge. This was before Microsoft decided the web was going to be huge. We said, the web's going to be huge. We need to get a web life, get our own website, get stuff running up there, figure out what the problems are, what our customers are going to need, start building fonts. Them. So Verdana and Georgia were examples of that. You know, go build a couple of fonts that were specifically designed, because most type has been designed for print. So when you design type, you design these high-resolution outlines you use for print, and then you've got to figure out what it looks like on a screen when the rasterizer turns it into, into dots, but you know what, there ain't many dots to play with. So you end up having to fudge all this stuff and, and yeah, it looks it looks horrible a lot of the time. What we what we did with Verdana and Georgia was design type completely differently. We started with the bitmaps, the screen bitmaps that we wanted to see at 10 and 12 point, the important reading sizes and then designed the outlines so that the rasterizer would generate exactly those bitmaps and then we kind of worked from it. So we, we started back to front. Instead of starting with the high resolution outlines and ending up with the bitmaps, we started with the bitmaps and eventually created the high resolution outlines completely back to front. But that's why you know, when Verdana and Georgia appeared, they were the most readable typefaces that, that anybody could find out there on the web and they, and they went everywhere. Not so much Georgia. But Verdana, Verdana, it's everywhere, you know, and and you know it has been for the, the decade or more since we did it. Serif fonts are more readable for longer periods of text. The serifs kind of give you a very stable baseline. Because they almost they, they 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 delineate the baseline. You know, the 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 end of a serif kind of leads your eye along to the next letter. They also help to create word shapes that we recognise very well. It's less stressful for us to read long passages of text with a serif font than a sans serif font. It's the human eyes, the way it works. Look, um, okay, so so here I'm with. Uh, I've got I've got like six hours left to run on my job search. Um, actually, you know, it was about a week or two before that, I started talking to Dick Brass, who was the vice president of Microsoft's electronic books group. It's May 1998, thereabouts. Now, Dick was vice president of three people, including himself at that time. Had no technical people, no technology, no credibility, nothing, no, no track record at Microsoft. And uh, so during my interview process, I said to Dick, Dick, I don't care how small an electronic book is, how light it is, how long the battery runs for, how many books it can hold, um, how cheap those books are. So the rubber meets the road when somebody picks up an electronic book device and tries to have the same experience they have with a printed book. Now think about the experience you have with a printed book. You pick it up, the printed book just disappears, right? The actual physical object disappears and you're in the world of the author. How the hell does it do that? What's going on? 
I said, if we could solve that problem, figure it out, and do the same thing for electronic books, then electronic books have a future. If we can't, we may as well all pack up and go home right now. So Dick said to me, your job will be readability researcher. Go figure out how we do it. And that was the start of this really intensive project. During the next couple of months, I read, I counted them up. I've got 12,000 pages of books, magazines, journals, etc. Plus everything I knew before. I jammed all this data into my head. Now, what's interesting is there are two parts of my life that have always seemed completely separate to one another. There's this whole technology piece and the, the writing and stuff like that. And there's nature. And when I came to the States, I got involved in animal tracking and wilderness skills and I started to spend a lot of time in the woods tracking. Now, how did humans first learn to read? It was actually before we invented writing. What we used to read were the stories in the tracks. I'm tracking a coyote. I'm reading a story. I can see this guy's going along just at kind of a regular pace. He's not in a hurry. He's not going moving slower. Which tells me he's not frightened of, of something or chasing something which would make him faster. And he's not kind of uh, hanging back or stalking something which would make him slower. He's just kind of bopping along and he turned his head here. wonder what he was looking at and all that all the stuff you can tell from the tracks. I'm doing this in the woods near my home and suddenly the light bulb goes off in my head and I realise what the technology of reading and writing is all about. That's how text has evolved to allow the information to stream in straight into our brain without us even having to think about it. Bill looks exactly the way he sounds. He's got his long gray hair pulled back into a ponytail, big old scraggly beard, piercing blue eyes as he stares into you, and they dance around as he explains the passion of his life's work. When we did the interview, it was a really, really hot day out, and it's pretty common to see people around here walk around without a shirt on, and that's exactly what Bill was doing. And I remember thinking to myself, you look exactly like a Scottish Highlander. And I only hope that I look as good as you when I get your age. And not only that, I hope I'm as excited about my work. A book's like a, a 300 page long water slide for our attention. You get on at word one and you just keep sliding through it. And all of the technology, font shapes, uh, font size, spacing, word spacing, line length, margins, page size, all of this stuff is set up because what we use when we read is a high resolution scanning machine. It's got 600 dots per inch resolution. It scans four targets a second and moves between targets. It takes it 25 milliseconds to move between targets. So it scans four targets a second. It's a high-precision, high-speed scanning machine. And what happens is that gets into a rhythm. And the whole technology of text 
The margins are cues for where you start recognising and end recognising. The line end and the, the distance between lines is the optimum one that allows you to jump back to the beginning of the next line. In fact, that's a later development. When, when people first started writing, one of the ancient Greek forms of writing is called boustrophon, which is the word for as an ox ploughs the field. So you started and you went left to right, and then right to left, and then left to right. So it was an unbroken track of meaning. But the problem is, once you invent an alphabet, words have a directionality. They're either left to right or right to left. So we had to avoid kind of writing them backwards on the second line. What we did instead was invented a convention that says when you get to the end of one line, jump to the beginning of the next one. And you set the distance between the two so that the eye kind of naturally falls into that. So it's all about creating this rhythm. When an animal runs, or when an animal's walking along, like that coyote I said, who, who was just in his natural gait, it's what trackers call harmonic gait. When a long-legged animal like a coyote or a cougar or a wolf or a deer is walking, the imprint of the rear foot is right on top of the imprint of the front foot right? because the legs are the same length. If the animal is going faster than normal, the front feet, the, the rear feet tend to start coming out in front because it's getting into this kind of galloping phase. And if it's going slower, they, they tend to be a bit further back because it's not taking quite such long steps. That's the harmonic gait of an animal. We have a harmonic gait when we read. It's our own natural gait. It's, it's a complex thing because it, it, it involves the way the type is set and the distance we have from it and the light, but also our own level of understanding of the content because, you know, if we come across a word that we don't think, and our own eyesight, you know, and, you know, as you get older, it gets worse. So we all have a harmonic gait and the, the, the technology of type has developed to allow to enable us to create this kind of level playing field over which everybody who reads can run at their own pace. I went back to the house, I wrote this paper. I think I wrote it pretty much non-stop, about 80 pages. It explained how the human visual system was used in order to, in order to read, how print worked, why the screen didn't work back then, what we had to do to fix it, and I defined kind of here's all the things that we need to do. I called the paper The Magic of Reading. It's up, you can find it on the web. Bill Gates read that paper five times. <laughs> he told my boss. Uh, he read it five times. And that kind of, that, that set the whole kind of user interface for Microsoft Reader, the ebook software. ClearType kind of grew out of that as well, all that, all that effort. The crazy thing about Microsoft Reader is, you know, as I say, they announced last week or the week before they're going to kill it. But if you took Microsoft Reader today and put it on an iPad, it would be every bit as good as iBooks or the Kindle Reader. It's every bit as good. And we did it 12 years ago. We gave them a 12-year technology lead. You know, I recently read a paper by a group at Stanford um, on why startups fail. And 90% of the reasons for it are premature scaling. And you don't think that'd be a problem at a place like Microsoft, but it is because you have a... I mean, the ebook team was basically a small technology startup, and it got scaled too far too fast. The team had always said, you know, in order to succeed in ebooks, we need a device, and we need a store, a bookstore. Microsoft didn't want to, didn't want to party with either of those. We actually built a really nice prototype way back then. It had 150 dots per inch screen, better display than this. 
guy. We built one, but it was too expensive given the technology at the time, and we couldn't get the battery to run for long enough. To put it into the hands of a customer would probably cost about 1200 bucks. Too much. I mean, nowadays, that would probably be in about 300 400 bucks, and that, that's acceptable. But back then it wasn't, and we couldn't get the battery to run for longer than a couple of hours. Although, that said, we'd never actually done a lot of the optimization because we never got to productize it. So we built a prototype. We wanted to have a bookstore, but Amazon, um, you know, Microsoft didn't want to get into competition with Amazon and a bookstore. Said, no. So who are the two companies that have succeeded in the electronic books? Amazon and Apple, right? And what did they both have? A device and a bookstore. <laughs> and... As I say, we had we had the software, we ha- we had the we had the team, but I'd been so badly burned that all I wanted to do was be an individual contributor. I didn't want to manage anybody at Microsoft ever again. It was horrible. So, I mean, I often tell people I spent 14 and a half years at Microsoft. Three of those years were the best working years of my life, and 11 of them were the worst, the absolute worst. that once the e-books thing got, got canned um, I actually looked around at the, the kind of survivors and said we've got to try and figure out a way to keep these people alive so I stepped up and started to manage them but there's no way that, that you were actually getting a free hand to, to do what was what was needed to be done you know it was kind of a wounded animal at that, by that time um, eventually I ended up in Internet Explorer naively you know, I was told, hey, come and help us make reading great on the screen. So I kind of arrived, but you know what? That team was so focused on feature parity with Firefox, nobody was listening. So so I was there for a couple of years, and basically, I was just spinning my wheels. When I started in type, I actually worked for a newspaper that still set its type in hot metal. I can still read type upside down and back to front from six feet away and edit it in my head. Yeah. So, I, so I've done the whole, I've watched the technology go through this incredible progression. I mean, I started back in newspapers in, in Scotland in 1968 and I did everything. You know, I, I, I wrote, I edited, um, I proofread, I went down to the case room. Uh, you did the stone subbing, sized pictures, you know, did the page makeup, editor, soup to nuts, the whole thing. I was like 19 years old. <laughs> it was an incredible opportunity. And then I went through, I went through about 18 years of working in newspapers, so I'm very familiar with that whole delivery of information thing. And then I got involved in desktop publishing in 1984, about three years before the market took off. I'm a newspaper guy, right? If I, if a paragraph is longer than 30 words, it's too long, right? That's how I write also. That's the other thing, you know, when I went, when I, when I left newspapers to join the software industry, I thought, well, that's it, that's my writing skills, I won't need those ever again. Wrong, wrong, because the ability to write meant that I could write a report and Bill Gates would read it five times because it was a good read, it was a good story.
that was a privilege. If you want to read more about what Bill is up to, have a look at his blog. It's up at billhillsblog.blogspot.com. Well, I don't know about you, Rob, but I just thank the good Lord that somebody cared. Somebody cared about fonts yeah. and that we're not all running MS Sans Serif non-anti-alias right now on all our machines. And what a weird thing. I surf with this guy. I've known this guy. He lives in my backyard. And was, here he is. <laughs> it was so funny because we were sitting around saying, we should do a show on fonts. Yeah. Oh, you know who I should? And I, and I said, you know who we should get? Bill Hill. And you yeah. said, Bill Hill? You mean the Scottish guy with the beard? Yeah, he's like super famous. Really? And then and then, and then you said, oh, uh, let me email him. He'll probably not answer. Yep. Literally, I was still on the phone with you. And he says, name the time. Or actually, name the time. I can't even do it with a Scottish accent, but he said, name the time. Let's go. <laughs> fonts, fonts, fonts. Rah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember I, I said, I got to go, man. He's going to meet me across the street in case people are listening to the audio wondering why it was kind of gorilla. I grab my mobile unit. I run over there. They're clanging dishes and whatever. And I just stuck it in front of his face and I could barely hold the microphone straight. What an amazing guy. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. So are we caring about fonts now? I mean, last time we decided to care about style, and now are we telling people they have to care about fonts? I think it just means that we're fancy. I like that. We can leave it right there. And again, a big thank you to the folks at Code Rush for Visual Studio for helping support this developer's life. Code Rush has the fastest rename, the fastest find all references, fastest test runner. When it comes to creating, modifying, and refactoring code, nothing's faster than Code Rush. It's been on my ultimate power tools list since forever. Get Code Rush. You'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash Code Rush. We appreciate their support. I hang my head and cry. Dumped up on fools with a quickness, and they got no cure for this sickness. I get paid for the way that I kick this, like a G-star, an old G-star. A real player named Easy, and I live my life straight crazy. Don't need no punk fools paying me, and broke groupies and hoochies don't faze me. I take two steps back and release myself, to put platinum and gold on a record show. I don't brag, but I tell it like it's straight up is. Before you do a record, partner, handle your business, and don't get caught slipping on the under. What's up on the mean? I call a spade a spade and get paid. She showed the way, so I give love to her. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry.
nobody get hurt. That's how it is when it comes to me. Cause I'm the short but wicked. Play a name easy. Women can't play me. Some say I'm crazy, but I don't think so. Coming through a logo. I get so damn about a scandalous trick. Let me hit it one time. The trick that's it, but don't trip. Gives my dough to no folk. That's how it is. I got no love for you. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son. Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno 